Welcome, I'm Mary O'Dowd. For today's episode, we're joined by Rutgers University President Jonathan Holloway to discuss the ongoing challenges of realizing his vision for the university amid the pandemic, what guides him, and what the past two years have taught us about health inequity. Thank you for joining us, President Holloway. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted your vision for Rutgers University and how you plan to spend your time with us? So, um, I mean, it's an obvious place to start, right? When I was announced to the university as the next president, it was uh, late January of uh, 2020. And as you all know, a few things changed in the weeks after that. I mean, at that point, we now know, of course, the virus is already in the United States, but that wasn't publicly known then. And so it was this, there was this other thing at some distance. And so when um, about a couple of weeks later, as it, as it appeared in Seattle and then, and then I'm sorry, in the New York City, New Jersey metro, I was still in Illinois and I could, knowing it was coming to Chicago, like it was coming into the Midwest, certainly. And I saw my presidency vanish, the one I thought I had inherited, you know, a campus that was in the black, that um, was ready to launch in all different kinds of ways and now was facing, I knew Rutgers would survive the pandemic, but we didn't know the financial hit that it was gonna be taking. We didn't know the health hit, although that was becoming frightful as we headed into March. So I felt truly, I mean, I'll say it, I felt sorry for myself for about 24, 48 hours. It's like, what did I just do? And then (laughs) of course knew that it's not about me, Everybody else is in the same boat. Get over yourself. It's like, okay, well, the presidency I thought I was inheriting, um, where I could start from a certain place, was gone. It wasn't like it might come back. It's gone. And so the question is, what in, I was guessing then, in a couple or three years, what might we then be able to do? Now, I was just making up two or three years, but that's that's the fact. I mean, uh, um, we managed, I think, I'll just say quite impressively through the pandemic. And and I came on after the hardest work was already done. So this is not me taking any credit for it. We managed a really difficult phase. And so now the question is, okay, as we come out of this phase, which is taking longer than we thought, I mean, thanks to the folks who are um, making this as complicated and as political as possible, uh, how are we going to learn and adjust and be different in, in what is a new normal? Um, as this becomes endemic? And, and then how are we going to figure out our strategies on a financial front, for example, in the wake of this? So these are the things that I'm wrestling with now. So, you know, the vision that drew me to Rutgers hasn't changed. I love the idea of Rutgers and its, and its mission. How we get to back to that as a core function so that every meeting isn't about COVID in some way. That's the ambition. And that's really about a year from now, I'm, I'm thinking, to be honest. Yeah, this is one of the always surprises in a leadership role when things don't go according to plan and uh, you have to sort of, you know, dodge and weave with it. And certainly this was a bigger um, unexpected curve. For yeah, you. I mean, at, at this point in my career, in terms of hired administration, you know, I had six years of experience in different roles prior to this one. I'm used to the curveball. I mean, the curveball is just every day. Because in a community of, the first time I, um, someone put it to me, I can't remember who anymore, I was at Northwestern, which is a community of 30,000 people. 
And this person said, in community of 30,000 people, someone's making a bad decision every day. <laughs> and the question is, how bad is it? And will it come to my attention? Well, now I'm in a community of 100,000 people. So certainly curveballs are coming every day, usually handled by somebody else. But if they're bad enough, they come to me. But no one was prepared for this one. You know, no one in, in, the, in the world of enterprise risk management, where you look at a heat map of where are your risks? Right. Pandemic existed on the Rutgers heat map. I know from internal conversation, but it was not in the dangerous part is the upper right-hand corner. It was not in the upper right-hand corner. It was vaguely somewhere down in the lower left, which is like, it'll happen one day probably, but really what's the risk? Not that great. You know, one of the things that you said was that the hard work had been done before you got here. And I'm not sure that I agree with that because I feel like right now is some of the hardest part when you know, we sort of see another surge in cases coming and it feels like we should be beyond this already. Yeah. And you've had to make a lot of decisions about reopening campus that have been equally difficult to how to close campus. Um, and, you know, really trying to take that assessment of what are those safety strategies to use, how to balance the often competing challenges of protecting individuals and their health mm -hmm. with, um, you know, from, from COVID itself, with also trying to get back to normal or the new normal, yep. knowing that by not moving forward, you're affecting the economic and mental health of so many people in our community. What are your core principles when you try to make those decisions? Yeah, uh, well, that's a really good question. Just to clarify, when I when I mentioned the hard work already being done, I'm really referencing the literal health and safety of an unknown environment when people just, you know, physicians, nurses did not know how to treat the patients at first. I mean, we know this in retrospect, like it's just everybody's best guesses, right? So that's, I mean, that's the sort of the terrifying, the unknown. When I joined the community unofficially really about April, when I stepped down as provost at Northwestern, although I was not in a decision-making capacity until July 1, sort of the, the scariest parts is what Rutgers was going through. Then it became, when I started to take the reins, it's like, okay, what are the programmatic decisions we have to make about moving forward? And in, in, the, in the spirit of the question you asked. So the guiding principle is always the health and safety period of the community. Um, and then what makes it really complicated is that when you factor in, when we start with health and safety, like being able to breathe, being able to open your eyes and being able to move around, okay. But you start adding in things that are very important and you mentioned in your question, um, when you start adding in the psychological, the emotional, the mental health aspects of, of health, then, and this is where we are now, it becomes a lot more complicated because individuals' capacity to thrive are different. They have different sets of resources, different sets of, you know, their, what I'll call their personal fiber in a, in a figurative kind of way. And they've had to endure different kinds of tragedies or challenges. So now I think the hard part is that it's messier than before. Um, whereas it's, it's gone beyond how to get somebody to stay alive to how do we get back towards people thriving. For a, Rutger, a university like Rutgers, I believe this path towards thriving is to get back to being in person as fast as possible, as fast as safely possible. Couldn't do it last year. There was, I, I feel, I you know, it was in a sense a hard decision to go remote because I knew of what the consequences would be, but it's actually quite easy in, a, in, in another sense. Like 
this is just science, folks, right? We just need to do this. Um, others disagree, and I've heard from them with enthusiasm um, at every step along the way. And I've had to make some really, really um, difficult decisions because what makes them difficult is that people either don't know um, are not willing to try to understand the complexities behind it. So that, um, for instance, this semester, Camden and Newark campuses are pretty much fully in person and New Brunswick isn't. Now, part of that is because people didn't follow my directions, which is very frustrating as a university leader. But part of it is because New Brunswick is so big and so complicated. The scheduling is a, is a, it's a, it's a very different set of data that one has to deal with. And so we couldn't be fully back in person. We start getting into the nuances and weeds on these things where people don't wanna go or can't get those places. They don't wanna believe that all of these decisions are being made with the goal of trying to get Rutgers to thrive, of trying to get Rutgers back to being um, what we know, well, I've yet to experience it in person truly, but what I've heard Rutgers can be. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of difficult decisions and, and my job is to wear those decisions. And, um, and look, I don't, my job is not to second guess the decision by the time it's made public. We've gone through the iterations. I know the pain that's gonna come my way with every one of the decisions that I make, um, but that's the job and that's this moment and that's just what we have to do. So anyway, how do you think things will change next semester? Well, that's a real wild card, right? I mean, with um, every day, you know better than I, the news is shifting in terms of the um, how contagious this new variant is, how virulent it happens to be, um, the true exhaustion we all feel about wearing these damn masks. Um, <laughs> and also the very conflicting sets of data we, or information we, um, I don't know if information is the right word. That um, oh, and then we're getting great news every day. It seems about um, medical interventions that are at least mitigating the right. nastiness of, of um, the Omicron variant. But we also are getting conflicting. What well, I'll call conflicting visual data. As I move around the state, different parts of the state feel very differently about masks. As I travel to different, I mean, as president, you travel. Different, I mean, I was in Indianapolis two weeks ago and felt like a complete weirdo for wearing a mask <laughs> in the lobby of the hotel. Like I was the only person doing this. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's all this cognitive dissonance and, um, and it's hard. I mean, I do think hats off to Rutgers as a community. We are doing so much better than the rest of the state, not, not to mention the rest of the country. We're about as safe as you can possibly be because by and large, people have done the right things and gotten vaccinated if, if they're able to do so, if they don't have an exemption. By and large, they're wearing their masks indoors. You know, I, I actually feel quite safe moving about Rutgers, whether I'm wearing a mask or not, because of the way the community's performed. Next semester, oh gosh, that feels so far away, even though it's like, a, it's a month. We're a in finals now, right? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, what my goal, everybody's goal is to get rid of these masks. I find that hard to imagine happening before it starts to get warm again in New Jersey. I mean, frankly, I mean, who, who right. knows? Right. Um, but and the uh, data keeps shifting. And the data keeps yeah. shifting. Yeah. And um, the outrage keeps growing. 
and and by the nature of outrage, there's kernels of truth in it, but it's also outlandish and almost it's not. I don't mean comical in a funny sense. I mean in a, in a in the way in a sort of a critical sense, comic of comical proportions. The outrage, right. and that's deeply unfortunate. But you know, I can't change a national the, the state of the nation's psyche. Um, I just have to do my job. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you can do here at Rutgers and your job, as you put it. Many at Rutgers have participated in person or virtually in a series of celebrations recently marking your inauguration as our new president. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and, you know, as you're going through these celebrations, what are you hoping that the people who have not yet met you or gotten to know you learn about you and your vision for Rutgers during this time? Well, first of all, the inaugurations. I want to thank everybody who helped make the act, the literal in-person events. Well, actually, some of the virtual ones, as I, because the inauguration, forty-eight hours was both. It, it worked seamlessly from my from my user perspective. It worked seamlessly. <laughs> An and, important perspective, though. Yes, and 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 you know, the inauguration was important. Sure, for me, from the standpoint of feeling officially in the job, although Lord knows I've been living this job, but I think much more importantly, it's for, I believe that um, um, things like tradition are very important to the way universities understand themselves and articulate themselves. And, and so the inauguration was important for many different reasons. To your question though, the inauguration was important because it was giving me yet another platform where I can articulate some very, simple ideas. Now, simple is not to mean that they are simplistic. I think they're actually quite nuanced and complicated and rich, but they're simple in the sense, if we could just take care of one another, if we can share compassion with one another, if we can be relentless in our pursuit of discovery, we'll do something really quite special. And I've been, I believe I've been consistent on those ideas. I'm not the kind of leader, nor will I ever be, who's gonna say, here are the 14 different ambitions for the university. Now, we have scores more ambitions, but they are, they are think of a pyramid structure. They are, they are at layers different than mine. If I were to talk about 14 different goals, it would just invite confusion. So for me, it's very simple and I've not wavered. I've talked about the relentless pursuit of academic excellence. I might've articulated in different ways, but that is all about the pursuit of our academic excellence. I've talked about the strategic importance of reducing the complexity of this university. It is way, we get in our own way so often. As so a Rutgers grad, I can What's that? confirm that. As oh, a yes. Rutgers grad, I can confirm that. And some of that's inevitable given our size, but much of it is not. It's been breathtaking for me to discover as an outsider, the things that we unnecessarily do and duplicate, um, never with ill intention, but because of a, of a failure to be collaborative, to communicate, to um, innovate together, right? And then, and I've talked about a beloved community. Now, there are the skeptics out there who've weaponized the phrase against me and said, basically saying, if you really cared about a beloved community, you wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. And for me, it's like, well, we disagree about certain things. Disagreement is actually core to the idea of a beloved community. But the, there, there is, I think, a bad faith proposition that I've seen too often within Rutgers, I must say, being quite honest, where that, you know, we aren't going to trust you, whoever you might be, 
in my case, it's me or the administration. We think you're full of bull about this whole beloved community thing. I'm like, wow, that's an approach I just don't understand because it talks about a negative outcome from the beginning of the process. Mm. I'm not gonna take that medicine. I will be on point consistently so with the idea of the importance of a beloved community, one that is robust in its ability, willingness to challenge itself, to challenge one another civilly, um, to push always, that's critical to the academic enterprise, but to recognize for goodness sakes that we are in this thing together, to recognize that we share a humanity for goodness sakes, to recognize that we all want our children, if we have them, to grow up in a better world, to recognize that we all wanna have food, clothing, and shelter, to we have these fundamental needs. And we are at a place in our national culture where we are seen to be so willing to not think about that first. And certainly social media and other media, not this podcast though, um, <laughs> are doing their part to fuel all this dissension. Why for short-term gains? I'm not interested in short-term gains. That, that's antithetical to a leadership of a university like this. So, so my, what you're gonna hear from me through the inauguration, certainly you heard it, um, through my annual addresses to the University Senate, to any, I mean, just my talking points for my presidency are gonna be three points long and they'll be articulated in different ways, but they're about the academic research enterprise um, and the teaching enterprise. They are about making this place less complicated and they're about trying to bring a positive uh, forward-looking engagement about what we share in common because it means that our disagreements will be fundamentally different and that's a healthy thing. One of the things that I have clearly taken away from not just hearing you speak and you've articulated it here as well, but how other people are talking about you is how important the students and community are to you. Mm -hmm. And also how clearly you enjoy engaging with them. And yes. I think many of the student speakers during some of the celebrations, they really articulated and demonstrated that, um, that, that feeling of engagement with you. Um, after these two years of the pandemic, nationwide, we and you've talked about this as well, we're seeing just a lot of um, exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And some of that is presenting in increases of depression, substance use, overdose, deaths, and suicide. And these things are a nationwide problem. They're a statewide problem. And because we are part of those um, entities, it's a Rutgers problem as well. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges that you see in trying to create that sense of community here for those Rutgers students in particular, and the strategies to try to address some of those challenges? Well, I mean, you've hit on some really important um, issues here. One of the great challenges in terms of building a community, and I said this in my opening introduction to the university back in January 2020, going back to the beloved community, that it seems silly to talk about that in a community of 100,000 people. And I didn't put it quite this way, but like, damn it, I'm, if that sounds silly, I'm fully invested in sounding silly, right? There needs to be, I mean, the job of the president is to set a message and set a tone as much as one can. And I'm going to be relentless in the belief that it is important uh, and a critical aspect of this beloved community is that you recognize all the aspects to it. And I've gone, I've invested myself in making sure to recognize the people who aren't often recognized. That's just personally very important to me in my life. It's not performative, it's real. 
Um, but I also think it speaks to the kind of issues that you're talking about in terms of the emotional exhaustion, the feeling of being disconnected and, and feeling a sense of uh, not feeling a sense of belonging. I get great authentic pleasure from interacting with students. I get great authentic pleasure from interacting with staff. I just do. You know, it's up to somebody else to explain to me why <laughs> that is. I don't need an explanation. It just brings me joy. And what I found, and this is from, this is not new to me in the presidency. I mean, I've, this is the way I've just been in my career, is that people, even pre-pandemic, are crying out to be recognized. They're crying out to be seen, you know, to be acknowledged. Valued. Valued. It doesn't mean they're not crying out to be agreed with. That's a nice thing. But actually, I don't think that's what they're looking for. They want acknowledgement. So I'm very openly, I'm, I'm quite liberal, political liberal Democrat. During some of the toughest moments when I moved into central administration as Dean of Yale College, um, the students who were the most forthcoming in their surprise about me were very conservative students because they presumed I would not listen to them. I'm like, but you're a Yale student. I mean, that's who I, I'm responsible for all Yale students. And that has carried forward into this, my life at Northwestern. And as I get to know students here, I'm hoping that that will carry forward here. And I hope it carries forward, not just to the students, but to the adults as well, is that I'm really quite serious that if you have an idea I don't like, that's okay. It's my job to, con get to convince you to change your mind, but I'm still gonna acknowledge you. And, the, and this is one thing we struggle in the office, like how do I get out to see students more? Because it makes me feel better, but I think it's really important. And I think in general, the more that administrators, managers, department chairs, deans, whatever, will take the time to acknowledge people outside of their little tiny bubble. It will help people feel better. In fact, at the inauguration, one of the most powerful moments for me was, in, was, was when a student, Susan Baggia, she said, and we didn't tell people what to talk about in her minute and a half. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I won't get this exactly right, but she said, she, because of, she was a Scarlet Grant recipient and, and that allowed her to be at Rutgers. And she said, because of that, I feel seen, I feel important, and I feel um, respected. I, I, it's not quite the right I remember. Yeah, I remember hearing. But I'm, I'm listening. I mean, I got goosebumps when I heard her say that. Little tiny Susan Badia. I mean, she's a petite person, <laughs> but a powerhouse, right? And that what she was saying was really important. And the fact you remember that is speaks to it, right? It's like this really, 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 really talented person had she not had the resources that were afforded by the Scarlet Promise Gang, would have felt rather invisible, would have been lost in the system, might not have made it to Rutgers. And she is gonna take the world by storm. Yeah. Why? Because she has been seen and respected and felt important. If we can do for our community what we have done for Susan, we will see a change in cases of depression. We will see a, a change in cases of suicidal ideation. We'll see a change of overdose and substance abuse. It won't fix it all. There's no way, there's no way. But the more we recognize the value that every person brings to the community, the healthier that community will be. And that will be the Susan Bodges of the world. That'll be the faculty of the world. That'll be the person who empties my garbage basket. You know, 
every single one who I did name in my inauguration, by the way, every single one of those people matter. Um, you know, part of the community of Rutgers also is the alumni. Yeah. And I think you speak to them as well as you're talking to the current students. And, uh, you know, I've shared before that I am of a large family, um, which engages in vigorous debate. So as you're speaking about these discussions of not agreeing, I'm thinking of my grandmother's dining room table where there was a heated debates constantly um, of many Rutgers, first generation alum, um, debating a lot of different issues. And I think, I think it's the pathway back that you're talking about yeah. this engagement, this acknowledgement of disagreement, not necessarily being negative, but a positive, um, engagement. And so, um, I I'm smiling because I'm feeling, you know, that I, I agree that this is part of our pathway back. Um, and so it's so important, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, based on your own research and you know, your books where you have documented our, our country's history with racism and discrimination. The COVID pandemic has highlighted significant disparities in the health outcomes around our country and our state um, by race and ethnicity. For just by one example, the result of death due to COVID has so, been so much more severely felt by our Black and Hispanic communities. Mm -hmm. From your perspective as a historian, looking at these challenges and opportunities mm -hmm. for our nation in addressing health and health care inequities based on race and ethnicity, what, what can we do to move that forward? Um, that is some uh, <laughs> massive question, um, but a really, really critical one. So now I'm a historian, right? So I, I look backwards for my answers. And one of the things that I mean, look, the, the health disparity outcomes that we've seen with COVID, um, anybody in the health industry will tell you this is not new. It's not right. new. This is an old story. The scale of it is, is perhaps new. Certainly the obviousness of it is new. And so the awakening to it, maybe. The awakening to it. And, and as tragic as it is, I welcome, if, that's, if this is what it took to hopefully change the conversation, then this is what it took, which is tragic and horrible and tells us about who we are. And that's the historian in me speaking. If you look back over the history of the country, and if you could say, I'll just make up a date. If you can say in 1850, there's gonna be a pandemic in 2020, who's gonna die most? Um, a smart observer could tell you in 1820 who would die most, okay? They could tell you that in 1760, a smart observer, like, I mean, in a way that would be impossible to do. I understand that I'm being fantastical in this. This is a very old challenge. People with limited resources have harder lives. They're more susceptible to disease, negative public health outcomes. Epidemiology has proven this time and again. It's not even an argument. Because of the way this country has been structured, who are the people who are most likely to be poor in terms of an overrepresented proportion of the population? Black and brown folks. Immigrants from European countries occupied that space for a while, but then they, were, they became elevated, certainly through their own hard work, of course, but also because there are other populations that they could step over in the process. Documented, not even worth arguing, arguing about. We've got the records for this. This is not to say that every single person who benefited 
um, from a social status, from a skin color, from a gender, from a sexuality is guilty, but it is to say they occupied space in a structured environment that allowed them to thrive. That's different than saying, oh, guilty, wag your finger. But it's just like, let's look at the record and you'll see that you have benefited. I know as a male, I've benefited from things that I'm not even aware of, right? I also know that when, even as president of the university, who lives in a very exclusive club of presidents, when I walk into a room of um, non-Rutgers, people who don't know who I am, and it's a largely white space, which is a lot of my life, I have to navigate it in a different way than um, the person with a, you know, from a, a very modest background who has white skin. That's a fact. So if you combine all these things together, you get no surprise that you have this horrible outcome that we're seeing now, utterly tragic and deeply avoidable if this country was more honest with itself. Now, people will say, this is a, a frequent phrase here from undergraduates in different settings, like this isn't fair. I'm like, this is the United States of America. Who promised you fairness? I'm not saying it's good or acceptable, but let's have a real mature understanding of what this country has been built on. Um, and I love this country. For anybody who thinks like I'm some sort of hater, I'm like, no, quite the opposite. But I'm furious with it. And that's the power of this country. That you can love it enough to hate it for the way it has treated people and still love it. How do you take on that structure and that unknown bias that we all have that you mentioned? You talk about it. You try to be aware of it as, as, as you walk through space. You know, you try to think of other people. My, mother's, my mother, um, no longer with us, is a kindergarten teacher. And I mean, I know <laughs> Robert Fulham wrote this book, Everything You Needed to Know in Life, You Learn in Kindergarten. I've got title something like that. And, you know, it's a bit treacly and, you know, maudlin, but damn it if it's not true. Like you share, share things. You play nicely. You know, the, the, these are things that I was taught that my mother used professionally that I was raised in. And like, and, and we aren't all the same people. Some of us are gonna have gifts that are treasured in a way that allows us to move forward in society because it's valued right now. This is a true statement. Others will be left behind because they don't have those gifts or they can't have the discipline to structure the gifts or people don't want to recognize them for their gifts. They aren't curious enough to say, oh, someone named Susan Bajia might actually be able to take Rutgers by storm if we can acknowledge her. So you need to have the will to share, the will to be honest with oneself about your privileges and your deficiencies, and yet have a desire to make things better. That is not just about bettering my position, but it's about bettering someone else's position. People I may likely never ever know. Because if I make their lives better in some way, my life will be better. I will benefit from a more stable society. I will provide something to a world in which my children will have a, a safer environment. Because you've tried to create something safer for other people. It's not that complicated. In fact, it's really damn simple. <laughs> you know, this is resonating with me because last year I took a kindergarten class virtually with my five-year-old. Ah. And so I learned many things from Miss Bazin. 
um, many songs, but the essence of what you're talking about, the kindness, how do you treat someone who uh, makes a mistake and how do you help them figure out how to fix their mistake? Yes. It's, it, it's all there in kindergarten. And, and I just relived it <laughs> in my forties. I, mean, I, I, I really think I'm, I'm so glad you had that kind of kindergarten teacher. I think most okay. of them are like that. Yeah. It, it just, it really isn't hard. Um, it's just that we, we get trained up by society to make it more complicated than it should be. We get trained up to try to leverage advantage over someone, take it, you know, to find an advantage. And I'm guilty of this too. Of course I am. You don't become a college president if you lack for ambition. You know, you just don't. Okay. But to the extent that my own subject position, because of the way I was raised and the environment I was raised allowed me to be in a place where I could take advantage of all these things. That's great. But the, the important thing is that I walk through a door. I don't close it behind me. You hold the door open for the next person. Now that may not be kindergarten. That may be, that may be adolescence manners. When you learn your manners, when your parents are saying, what the heck do you just do? Like I walked through the door, like you didn't hold it open. It starts in kindergarten. Okay, good. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it really, I mean, there, there have been moments and I, I, I say this, um, I'm being quite honest. There've been moments when people have come at me in different settings where I find myself wondering what happened? Like what, this is not about me right now. This is about something else happening in your past or in this very, very hard moment. And so your outlet is going to be me. The best piece of advice I got before I came here is from my former boss at Northwestern's president. He said, your business card has your name, comma, president. When they come at you, remember they're coming at what's after the comma, not what's before. Now they'll personalize it as the before, but they're coming at you for the after, what's after the comma. So that's been a very valuable lesson. And, and, and I just try to remember or try to keep in mind that this is not personal, although it feels deeply personal, that we are all strung out, we're all exhausted, we're all angry, we're all stressed out, and we need to grant one another grace. And we need to care about one another. And I mean like literally care, like, I need to be concerned about your welfare because that's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. We do not have an apparatus, in the, a cultural apparatus in this country right now that says caring in that way is okay. And that's heartbreaking to me. But many of our political leaders are not, they're not giving that message. Our, the talking heads on TV are not giving that message. Um, social media is definitely not giving that message. I don't know how to break through it all, but, but at the end of the day, it is, it is simply not difficult. It's not hard to care about somebody. Let me ask you one final question. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Um, you know, I'm not a resolution kind of person because, you know, what's the, what's the first thing that goes wrong in the new year? Your damn resolutions. I, mean, <laughs> certainly I, have, I have my ambitions. Um, and, you know, there are those things that I would want as president in the new year. Uh, there are those things that I, you know, that I've certainly shared and could share again. There's those things that are personal that I refuse to share because, and I mean this quite seriously, and, and I don't take, you know, I, the question is a very logical one. It's like, as president, I have to reserve space for Jonathan, like that no one else gets except for my wife and my family. So all that said, I still don't have resolutions. I've never been <laughs> 
but I do hope, look, I, I really do believe in the transformative potential of a Rutgers education and a Rutgers working and teaching and research environment. I really believe in that. The sooner we can get to doing that in person, um, at, you know, what we consider 100% in person, which is not fully 100%, but because there's some online aspects, the better. The sooner that for me personally, that I can see Rutgers in action as Rutgers, the better. I mean, that's what for me, the inauguration was so great because I actually saw Rutgers showing its best self to the world. And it was inspiring, it was beautiful. And it was fun and it was irreverent and it was serious and it, it, was, just, it was just sparkling. Um, so I want that for Rutgers. And, and I really do hope that people will take me at my word that, will I do things perfectly? Oh, heck no, I'm a human being. I'll mess up plenty of times. But in all of my work, I am trying to move Rutgers to a place where we recognize the things we share in the community, where we recognize the things we share in common. I'm trying to emphasize the fact that we do so many great, great, great things here already. Here already. We are what excellence looks like, but we have to believe that and we have to talk about it. It's not about being arrogant, it's about being confident. It's an amazing institution. Why not feel good about that fact? And then why not make it better? These are the things I want for Rutgers, certainly. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On the Pandemic. This is Mary O'Dowd, Executive Director of Health Systems and Population Health Integration for Rutgers University. For more information on how Rutgers is meeting the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit coronavirus.rutgers.edu.